Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Brian Ballow. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. Every year, New York's St. Patrick's Day Parade marches up Fifth Avenue and brushes past the steps of a world-famous monument to Catholic piety, vision, and ambition. So we're going to start at a special ceremony on 51st Street in New York City. But it's not the bustling midtown Manhattan that we know today with its hotels and banks and glitzy shops. This is August 15th, 1858, and this part of the city is still woodsy and unpopulated. Here, the Archbishop of New York, John Hughes, is about to lay the cornerstone for his dream project, the construction of the greatest church in the United States. So on this uh, this hot Sunday in the summer of 1858, he has a platform erected on the empty lot that is now St. Patrick's Cathedral. This is writer John Lokery. He says that an enormous number of people packed into the open space, 40, 60, or maybe even 100,000 people. The omnibuses and trains that are heading uptown have been packed for three, four hours before to get everybody from the populated part of the city. Some newspapers said entire neighborhoods downtown are emptied that Sunday. Hughes put together a ceremony worthy of the monumental crowd. Around 200 priests attended and 100 choir boys sang throughout the procession. Plus, the archbishop adorned the area with flags representing the congregation. Banners from France, Spain, Russia, and the Netherlands. But one flag held a place of honor above the rest. By the spot where the altar of the cathedral would be, he placed an Irish flag, a flag with a harp on it, and then he placed a cross above it. That was a kind of statement saying, we, the Irish, are building this cathedral. John Hughes became Archbishop of the New York Diocese in 1850, an era of intense anti-Irish and anti-Catholic feeling in the United States. In the decades prior, Nativist backlash had erupted as waves of Irish immigrants came to the United States. Many Americans saw the Irish as dirty and ignorant. In some cities, rioters had destroyed Catholic churches and convents. Hughes, an Irishman himself, wouldn't take it. Rather than uh, turn the other cheek, he was not a turn-the-other-cheek sort of person, really. He takes on all of these people in a polemical way in his own speeches and writings. Um, He insists that if anything happens to the churches of New York, the Protestants had better look to their own churches. Of course, the Irish Catholics loved that. He was constantly trying to explain to the Vatican, this is what Americans respect. They respect confidence and clarity and strength. His position and his rhetoric made Hughes the most famous Catholic in the country. And his militancy earned him a rather unpriestly nickname, Dagger John. 
He would put a cross by his name, as bishops and archbishops do more nowadays especially. Enemies of the time said that wasn't a cross, it was a dagger. Um, and I, I think there were times when he almost took a, a strange pride in it. Let them be wary of me. Yes, let them not think because I'm a man of, of the cloth, a man of God, that I'm not also someone to be reckoned with. I think he liked that aspect of uh, his persona. Other Catholic officials didn't really appreciate his style. But there was no doubt that without him, there would have been a void. There wouldn't have been a person saying, we will feel a bond if we understand we are under attack. And you, the Irish, are are not what the Protestant nativists of this country say you are. They say you're uneducated. They say you're, you're hopeless. They say you don't understand American values. They say you're all vassals of the Pope. You'll never be true American citizens who will bring anything to this country. And he constantly was saying to the Irish, don't believe that. You are a great people in many ways, greater than uh, maybe greater even than you know. And I'm here to tell you that. And I'm here to lead you to a proper place uh, in the society. He encouraged his flock to adopt a threefold identity. Be loyal Catholics, good Americans, and also be proud of their Irish heritage. In some ways, he could be seen as one of the originators of the idea of the hyphenated identity. So in that sense, he really is a kind of galvanizing force for an ethnic as well as a religious community. And Hughes had a vision for the construction of a building which would symbolize faith, community, and religious devotion. He was inspired by a trip to Europe. He went to Paris and Rome, Florence, Vienna, um, soliciting funds and meeting figures at the Vatican. But he also worshipped in those great cathedrals uh, in Paris and Florence, Venice and Rome, and came back feeling, if we are to uh, come together as a Catholic community, we need our own cathedral here. Lockery says that the construction of St. Patrick's Cathedral was the culmination of this goal. It was going to be more Irish Catholics who contributed the funds. There were going to be Irish Catholic workers who built it. The majority of his parishioners uh, were Irish Catholic. That this was going to make them feel very good about themselves as Catholics and as, uh, and as Irish people, as Irish Americans. He thought the cathedral would be a wonderful, a wonderful symbol reinforcing those different parts of an identity that he was trying to, uh, that he was trying to cultivate. Dagger John Hughes didn't live to see the completion of the cathedral. He died in 1864, and St. Patrick's wasn't finished until 1878. But the great church survives as a testament to Hughes' vision. It is an awesome building still. I mean, when one goes today, it's full of both worshipers and tourists who are in awe of the, of the beauty and complexity of this building. And that would have been deeply satisfying to him, definitely. So today on the show, we'll celebrate St. Patrick's Day by exploring Irish culture in America. We'll hear some Irish-American music made at the birth of the recording industry. We'll revisit our story on the Irish Brigade, a legendary federal unit in the Civil War known for its bravery. And we'll talk about Irish-American identity and ask, why does everybody get to be Irish on St. Patrick's Day? Now, of course, it's hard to see, but trust us, we're all dressed in green here at Backstory and looking forward to telling the story of the Irish in America. At the same time that New York's visionary archbishop was constructing a symbol of spiritual grace and Irish benevolence, 
135 miles west of New York City, Irish mine workers were up in arms, in a manner and under a banner that reached back to the old country. The Molly Maguires really, in, in one sense, were the last of their line because that, that secret society tradition rooted in very old um, culture in rural Ireland um, is an unlikely fit for, for the American Industrial Revolution. Kevin Kenny is a history professor at Boston College. This is a story of a secret society and a mystery that still roils the blood in eastern Pennsylvania. By the mid-19th century, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing. It was like an unstoppable engine, and it ran on coal, particularly hard coal, known as anthracite. Good for use in factories and in homes, and the world's largest supply happens to be in eastern Pennsylvania. It's a very rapidly developing uh, industrial region, uh, very wild, very rugged, and very violent. In the 1860s, the anthracite region of Pennsylvania could be divided into two halves, the upper region around the town of Scranton and the lower region around the town of Pottsville. In the upper region, the railroads, the, cor the big corporations already have a monopoly over the production and distribution of coal. In other words, they own the coal mines and they're shipping the product out uh, to New York City. This monopoly is enviable to one Franklin B. Gowan, president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad. It's his dream to replicate this model in the southern region. But he has one major obstacle, a powerful labor union known as the Working Men's Benevolent Association. And what's distinctive about the Working Men's Benevolent Association, uh, known for short as the WBA, is that it's open to mine workers of all kinds. In other words, the most skilled and the least skilled Protestant and Catholic, um, British and Irish. The WBA wants fair wages and better working conditions. With their 35,000 members, they could bring coal production to a halt with a single strike. But striking wasn't the only weapon used against mine owners. And the WBA wasn't the only player in the game. A smaller, shadowy, obscure form of labor organizing that has much the same goal, which, which is uh, decent um, wages and working conditions, but goes about the task very differently. And that group is, we refer to as the Molly Maguires. The Molly Maguires consisted of the most alienated of the Irish mine workers. They were the, uh, the unskilled laborers, the ones who came from the most remote parts of Ireland, the ones who were most likely to speak uh, the Irish language. And as Kenny referred to earlier, they have their own ideas about how to obtain better working conditions. If there was a problem in a particular mine, uh, they would approach the mine owner and they might post a coffin notice. Uh, and a coffin notice was a crudely sketched uh, um, image of a coffin uh, on a piece of paper that would be nailed to somebody's door uh, with the words, uh, this will be yours. This form of rural secret society violence had a long history in the Irish countryside. In fact, the American Molly Maguires were inspired by an Irish group in the 1840s with the same name. 
Molly Maguire obviously is, is a woman and uh, there, is, there are various stories told in Ireland that there was a real woman, Mistress Molly Maguire, who was to be evicted from her household and refused to leave and that the house was leveled on top of her and then a group of people got together to avenge her memory. That's folklore. That's uh, We don't know if the, uh, of any particular uh, woman called Molly Maguire. What we do know is that groups of young men engaged in this pattern of secret society violence and to protect their anonymity, they dressed as women. They took the image of Molly Maguire uh, as the emblem of their struggle for social justice in the Irish countryside. The American Molly Maguires didn't dress as women, but they did carry out the assassinations of mine owners, foremen, and supervisors. And at the Reading Railroad headquarters in Philadelphia, Franklin B. Gowan saw an opportunity. He would use these assassinations to dismantle all forms of labor organization in the mines. Although the WBA uh, steadfastly um, opposes Molly Maguireism, Franklin B. Gowan argues consistently uh, that the two are related, that the Molly Maguires, in effect, are the terrorist wing of the trade union. And it's on that basis that he sets out to destroy both. In October of 1873, Gowan holds a meeting with Alan Pinkerton, the founder of America's first detective agency. He asked Pinkerton to help him get to the bottom of what he describes as the Molly Maguire conspiracy. Pinkerton dispatched an Irish-born agent, James McParlin, to go undercover in the mining community. And he masquerades as, you know, uh, a good fellow, um, having, you know, lots of... uh, escapades and uh, throwing his money around ingratiates himself with the local community. For two and a half years, McParland sends frequent reports back to the agency with his findings. He tells Pinkerton the Molly Maguires have connections to yet another Irish organization. McParland's first move is to connect them to another organization, and that is the Ancient Order of Hibernians, the AOH. The AOH is is a a Catholic um, fraternal society, a working-class fraternal society um, that exists uh, not only in Pennsylvania, but nationally and indeed internationally. On the one hand, it's uh, absurd to say that because some Molly Maguires belong to the AOH, Molly Maguireism was a national or international conspiracy. That was said repeatedly in the 1870s, but it, it doesn't wash. Um, but at the same time, it seems quite clear on the basis of my research uh, that local lodges of the ancient order of Hibernians were used for violent purposes. In, in other words, in... Um, a handful of lodges of the AOH in the heart of the the lower anthracite region, uh, crimes were um, plotted, arranged, and put into execution. Now that Gowan and the Pinkertons had their evidence, 
All they needed was the right moment to swoop in and crush the Molly Maguires. That moment came in 1875, in the middle of the most severe economic depression the United States had seen. The WBA was waging what would be their final labor struggle, known as the Long Strike. Um, it draws national attention. Um, in the newspapers, there are scenes of near starvation uh, that are reported um, by the end of that strike. And by June or so of 1875, uh, the union goes down to final and total defeat. So the labor movement is gone. Into the vacuum left by the labor movement uh, step the Molly Maguires. Six more assassinations occur that summer, but the Pinkerton Agency now has several undercover detectives on the case, and soon the arrests begin. Um, about 50 uh, people are put on trial, um, accused of Molly Maguire crimes and activities. All of them are members of the ancient order of Hibernians. The trials draw enormous um, attention nationally for a number of reasons, um, not least being the evidence of McParlin himself, who is revealed as an undercover detective. He wa walks into the courtroom and there is uh, their friend and confidant for the last two and a half years now revealed as an undercover detective. The evidence of informers who turn state's evidence to uh, save their necks. Uh, uh, the wife of one of these informers denounced him from the witness stand as a dirty little rat. Um, Catholics, we know, were excluded from the juries. But perhaps the most extraordinary of all is that the lead prosecutors in these showcase trials were railroad and coal mine attorneys. And the most spectacular uh, and prominent of all of them was Franklin B. Gowan, who came up from Philadelphia to deliver the uh, arguments for the prosecution at several of the trials in Pottsville. And on June 21st, 1877, known locally as Black Thursday, or the Day of the Rope, 10 men are executed. Over the next two years, 10 more men are hanged. But how many of them were innocent? How many were guilty? Kenny says we'll never know for sure. I would say, I would say some were guilty as charged. Some were not guilty as charged, but may have been involved in other things. And I'd say one or two were were very unlucky. Um, interestingly, the, the ringleader, the alleged ringleader of the the Molly Maguire conspiracy, um, a man called John Kehoe, um, in nineteen seventy nine, he received a posthumous pardon. Uh, from the governor of Pennsylvania. Because of the miscarriage of justice, the Molly Maguires have been remembered as working-class heroes, victims of capitalist and nativist oppression. But Kenny says he's not satisfied with that interpretation. And I suppose the reason why that's not satisfactory is that in the end of the day, there are 16 dead bodies on the stage, and somebody killed them. Right? <laughs> and so the... I remember when I got, uh, remember giving a lecture in, out in the mining region in, in the prison where four of the men were hanged, and I was standing giving a public lecture just outside their cells, and I said, 
that the Molly Maguires um, killed people and that the historian's task is to explain why. And I paused deliberately, you know, to hear that pen drop um, because it was a very silent room and most of my audience didn't want to hear that. Um, But I think that the explanation lies in Irish history. Uh, So what I see happening is under really desperate conditions that a certain kind of Irish coal worker, desperate and alienated, drew on Irish rural traditions to fight back uh, in industrial America. Kevin Kenny is a history professor at Boston College and the author of Making Sense of the Molly Maguires. Earlier in the show, we heard from John Lockery. He is the author of Dagger John, Archbishop Hughes and the Making of Irish America. One of the most notable and beloved aspects of Irish-American culture is the traditional music scene. And the story of how Irish music became popular in America goes hand-in-hand with the history of Ireland in the 19th and 20th centuries. In 1845, a massive famine devastated Ireland. It lasted five years, and in its wake, the population of Ireland had been reduced by roughly 25% from deaths or emigration. Many of those who left the island came to the United States. Any group of people that are forcibly uh, moved from somewhere, they are incredibly nostalgic about where they come from. Scott Spencer is an ethnomusicologist who runs the music library at the University of Southern California. This was a group of people that had um, really been ripped away from a place that, uh, that they loved. One generation later... Irish Americans were distant spectators to a nationalist uprising for Irish independence. Known today as the Easter Rising, it was forcibly suppressed by British troops, resulting in over 2,000 casualties. By then, one-fifth of the U.S. population claimed Irish heritage through immigration or ancestry. And a strong community was forming around this shared sense of identity, especially through music. You have um, hundreds of people getting together in this big nostalgic thing of um, people from all over Ireland instead of just a regional area, all collecting together for this music, this dance, this uh, uh, social uh, event. And there's no microphones. So how do you get the sound across to everybody who's dancing? Be loud. Well, I'd love to drill down into some of those musicians. Uh, tell me about this guy, Patsy Toohey. Uh, what did he play? So Patsy Toohey is a really interesting character. He played a thing called the Illin Pipes, um, which is a U-I-L-L-E-A-N-N, Irish for elbow. It's a bellows-driven bagpipe. Instead of one that you, uh, you blow into a bag, you actually uh-huh. use a bellows to inflate it. What he's doing is really loud. It's built for dance halls. But he's still being really incredibly flexible with the music. He's doing a lot of really intricate runs and ornamentation. Yeah. 
So he's doing something that's really traditional, but it's also got kind of an American flair to it. Well, another very important character in the story of Irish music at this time was a woman by the name of Ellen O'Byrne. Tell me something about her. So Ellen O'Byrne, she is, she's another person that's um, kind of amazing uh, character in uh, the recording industry here. She's, um, she's thinking outside of the box. So she's born in Leitrim, County Leitrim in 1875. She moves at age 15 to New York City and marries, uh, marries a Dutchman by the name of Justice DeWitt. They open together a store in 1900, um, probably, I think, 1360 Third Avenue, New York City. Wow. And it's a real estate business and a travel business. And they're doing <laughs> a lot of um, uh, work with steamerships going back to Ireland. And um, she's capitalizing on the nostalgia around this. Um, Easter Rising is 1916. Uh, there's a lot of uh, big splashy headlines in New York about what's happening back in Ireland. The Irish diaspora is really interested in what's happening and trying to keep connected. So they keep coming into the store and asking, do you have any recordings? There were a few, there weren't that many. And so at one point, Ellen O'Byrne DeWitt goes to Columbia Records and says, we really need um, Irish recordings. There was another company, I think Jeanette, uh, Janet, that had been um, doing some Irish recordings, but not much traditional stuff that you could do dances with. So she goes to Columbia and she says, I'll tell you what, I will promise that I'll buy 500 recordings if you record Irish music for me. And they say, okay. So her son, uh, Justice Jr., goes out to Celtic Park and looks around for, uh, it's a sporting event uh, institution, and uh, there's usually musicians that are doing busking around the area. So he goes to find musicians, and he runs into Eddie Herborn on accordion and um, John Wheeler on banjo and asks them if they would come into the, the studio and record. So we just heard the stack of barley, and if you listen in really closely, you can hear that there's a strong downbeat. There's kind of a backbeat that's going on there too. But the music itself is really based on dancing. So if you hear them playing, they're really going for the downbeats and they're trying to get a little, as they say, lift going on too, a little something that will get the dancers up off the ground. John McCormick, probably one of the first international recording stars in history. Um, Caruso might have been in there as well, but McCormick really captured hearts um, on multiple continents. Um, to I have to do the, uh, the academic scholarly stuff here. Born in 1884 in <laughs> Athlone in Ireland, um, the fourth of 11 children. He, uh, his parents uh, worked at the Athlone Woolen Mills, so he came from a pretty working class 
um, background, a pretty rural, you know, working class background. Yeah. His first, I believe his first recording was in 1904 on the wax cylinder. And, um, but then his, uh, his cherished and beloved things were uh, recordings from Victor from the 1910s and 20s. He was absolutely known for singing those real heart-tearing uh, songs. Makushla is actually my heart. And um, I think a lot of people in Irish America would know it's a long way to Tipperary or the wearing of the green. And again, he really benefited from political things happening in Ireland, um, the end of the war, this incredible feeling of nostalgia, and also the burgeoning recording scene. And he happened to be at the right place at the right time with a really good voice. Yeah, uh, with the right voice, that's for sure. Yeah, well, beautiful set of pipes. Well, to move from pipes to strings, we don't want to leave out the fiddle players, right? Who were some of the key fiddle players and, you know, what was their style? So here's a really funny story. Um, we have, so we have all of these people that had emigrated from Ireland to the U.S. And in the U.S., it didn't really matter if you were from County Sligo or County Mayo or from Dublin. Sure. Um, it's, it's just it's like in Ireland. the U.S. <laughs> yeah, it's all Ireland, exactly. And if you're in a foreign land, you are kind of gravitating towards other people from your homeland. It doesn't really matter where you're from. Even if you didn't like them before. Right. You get together in New York and you're all Irish. <laughs> exactly. So you have this really interesting situation where you have two guys that had grown up literally a stone's throw from each other. And really, I don't think they even knew each other. This is James Morrison and Michael Coleman. Both were from County Sligo. Um, Morrison born in 1893, um, Michael Coleman in 1891. They both moved to the U.S. in about the same time, 1914, 1915. And um, James Morrison was known as the professor. Um, very staid, um, sort of dependable um, excellent musician, and he was in huge demand for uh, for dances up and down the East Coast. Michael Coleman was a little bit more of a rakish patty. He was a little bit more of a rogue. <laughs> and he um, would sometimes double book himself for gigs. He was known for not showing up or showing up in an, uh, um, an inebriated state, but he was just a bombastic, amazing player. Again, at the right place at the right time. Shannon, Vocalion, Columbia, OK, New Republic, Pathé, Oberndewitt, Victor, Brunswick, Decca, um, just a really prolific recording artist. Um, died, unfortunately, quite young, but you can still hear the Sligo style in New York City to this day, mainly because of these two musicians. Do the musicians themselves, are they aware of that? Or, you know, that's just doesn't matter to them. Um, it's a really interesting thing, in fact. If you go to different sessions, and you can find a session in pretty much any major city in the U.S., and a lot of small towns, too, this is where musicians just get together and play just for the fun of it. You, you can go down to an Irish bar, and you'll find musicians that are there every Tuesday or every Sunday. Yeah. So buy them a pint, 
and um, and go ask them about this <laughs> because they will they'll tell you for every single tune that they play they'll tell you where they learned it from from whom That's they learned cool. it, what county it comes from what its lineage is um, they know all of this stuff and some of them don't read music but they have all of these stories in their heads. Um, they can relate it back to a particular recording or to a particular player or even a particular day where they learned it from somebody in Ireland or in New York or in Boston or Los Angeles. It's, um, it's pretty incredible. So all of that lineage is there and they can tell you about the particular style that they play in, the particular people that they see as influences, and even the particular recordings. A lot of the musicians will look back to these recordings and say, this is a particular style and this is a style that I adhere to. Scott, thanks so much for joining us on Backstory today. A pleasure. It's a pleasure to be with you. Scott Spencer runs the music library at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Wheels of the World, How Recordings of Irish Traditional Music Bridge the Gap Between Homeland and Diaspora. In December 1862, Northern and Southern troops faced off on the slopes of Marie's Heights in Fredericksburg, Virginia. The Union assault on the Confederate protected hill would ultimately amount to a suicide mission. Among the Northern troops was a unit called the Irish Brigade, known by the emerald green flag its soldiers would carry into battle. The brigade was formed at the beginning of the Civil War by Irish immigrants and Irish Americans eager to show their support for the Union cause. They hoped their patriotism would combat anti-Irish sentiment that was so prevalent at the time. That winter's day in Fredericksburg, the brigade's battle-worn emerald flag was actually up in New York, getting repaired. And so the Irish troops instead put sprigs of boxwood in their caps to identify their Irish heritage. The northern troops lost the battle, but in the years after the war, it was commonly said that no one showed more bravery in the face of certain death than the troops with the green in their hats. Back in 2014, I spoke with English professor Craig Warren about this mythic regiment. He said that this tale of Irish triumph hides a darker story. In fact, it was the low point in the war for most of Irish America, uh, of the 1,200 soldiers who uh, took part in the battle, 545 were killed, wounded, or missing. Um, and because the brigade suffered such horrendous casualties and because so many people on the home front lost uh, loved ones uh, and neighbors, uh, it was ultimately one of the reasons that many Irish turned against the war. And uh, many Irish Americans decided that what had happened was that the Irish brigade had been uh, wantonly sacrificed during the battle by generals who saw them simply as cannon fodder. And that's because of their Irish heritage? That's just because they were seen as something less than full citizens? That's right. As a result, they just uh, decided the war had nothing, uh, there was nothing that would benefit them. Uh, the war effort wasn't bringing people around to see the Irish uh, as true Americans. 
Uh, and so they turned their backs on that war effort uh, and uh, decided that it was not worth investing for their time, energy, lives, and money into. And uh, it's not too much to say that you can draw a straight line between the Battle of Fredericksburg and the uh, New York City draft riots of 1863. Really? Most now, those of, happened in the summer of 1863, so that roughly six or seven months after the battle? That's correct. There were uh, mass riots uh, in the streets of New York. Uh, there was a, a mob of white protesters who uh, did a number of, of destructive things, uh, smashing buildings, um, finding African-American freedmen in the streets and uh, lynching a number of them. Uh, it took actually a detachment of soldiers from the Army of the Potomac uh, to come into the city and restore order. Uh, and at the end of this encounter, the vast majority of the rioters who were killed or were imprisoned were of Irish descent. Uh, and so this really was a black eye for uh, the Irish-American population during the war and convinced a number of other Americans uh, that, in fact, they were not loyal to the war effort. Now, I, I've seen um, references to the Irish Brigade uh, and the story of their heroism. I never see any reference to the draft riots or actually the response back home that you just described. So explain uh, how that got erased from history. What happened was, after the war, Irish uh, brigade veterans forged a remarkable body of literature that took the low point of the Irish brigade's uh, history, uh, the Battle of Fredericksburg, when they, after which they effectively ceased to operate as a brigade, and transformed it into the brigade's most glorious moment. Uh, and they did this by publishing a series of memoirs uh, that championed the Irish soldier, that portrayed him in the best light possible, and which uh, showed his suffering and sacrifices uh, at such places as Antietam and especially at Fredericksburg as his ultimate uh, sacrifice on behalf of his American nation. Uh, and all of them wanted memory of Irish participation in the war to remember the Irish Brigade soldiers on the field, not rioting Irishmen back home in, in the city. And so they did everything they could to elevate and even mythologize uh, the Irish soldier during the Civil War. What do you mean elevate or mythologize? Do you have any examples? One of the emphases that we find in the memoirs of Irish Brigade veterans is the story of uh, the, the Irish Brigade encountering a full brigade of uh, Confederate Irish uh, who supposedly recognized their countrymen by those sprigs of boxwood in their caps and who, though reluctant, uh, uh, fired into those ranks standing by their Southern convictions. And that was enhanced and embellished in the post-war uh, memoirs uh, to be seen as this tragic, uh, poignant, ironic uh, conflict between Irishmen North and South. So uh, let me get this straight. Being loyal to the Confederacy proved that these Southern Irish soldiers were true Americans, even though they were fighting against America. That's right. How does that work? In the late 19th century, there is this move towards reconciliation. And uh, there became, over time, this understanding that as long as one had participated in the Civil War and uh, fought for one's uh, section, 
and had stood up for one's beliefs, then that person had demonstrated their loyalty to the American experiment. Uh, and each were fought fighting for American ideals. Now, maybe for the Union, maybe for the Confederacy. But the idea was that to have participated in the war was what mattered. So, so in the mythology of what all of this meant, and, and, and again, we're looking back at this from roughly, let's say, the 1890s, what this was saying from the Irish perspective was, don't worry, we will be loyal to the ideals and the principles of America. We are not going to be just loyal to our fellow Irishmen. We're not going to participate in machine politics in the cities. We're not going to hire Irish over other ethnicities. Uh, We are capable as Irish of being loyal, in fact, dying for ideals and principles. Exactly. Yeah, the message was that contrary to pre-war beliefs that the Irish were not true Americans, that uh, they were interested only in the stake of uh, Ireland across the Atlantic, um, that instead these men were willing to fight and die for their adopted country uh, and for their homes, be it north or south, and that that was a stronger connection ultimately than the shared heritage. And do you think that these memoirs helped Uh, with American acceptance of Irish immigrants in the late 19th century? I believe so. And uh, I think that their strategy worked. There was a a wide-scale celebration of the Civil War veteran during the late 19th century and early 20th. And there was a receptive audience for stories about uh, soldiers in uniform and and their adventures and achievements and sacrifices. And so this story uh, folds the Irish-American story into the larger story uh, that we so often hear about the Civil War, and that is that it was a brother's war. And uh, Irish memoirists stress this as a way to show that uh, they were as true Americans as any other citizens of the United States. Craig Warren is a professor of English at Penn State Erie. Joanne, Nathan, every St. Patrick's Day, I'm surrounded by people wearing green. They're wearing buttons saying, kiss me, I'm Irish. Why not kiss me, I'm German or anything else? Why the Irish? I I think part of the answer has to do with the fact that the Irish have always been a really prominent, major cultural immigrant group in America, all the way back to the beginning of the Republic. Hmm. In the early years, I think they were generally accepted. In slightly later years, when you move on into like the 1820s and 1830s, then you begin to get people identifying and pointing to the Irish in a not so positive mm. way. So that that might not be a kiss me, I'm Irish phase in time, but quite the opposite. Why is that? Is that numbers? It's partly numbers. There's a huge increase uh, in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. It's partly because early Irish that came were Protestant and the later wave were Catholic. Right. And America had serious issues with Catholics. Uh, so anti Catholicism reared its ugly head up, and the second wave of Irish also tended to be more agrarian. Mm. Um, they found their way more into manual labor. I think Americans sort of pegged them as a as a separate group and and sort of 
cast them out in a way. Right. I mean, I, I think the Catholic identity is really major, both for them and for Italians, especially in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. There are all kinds of nativist concerns about what Catholics' connections to the Pope are, whether they're anti-democratic. You know, it becomes really important for many Irish in American cities to assume a measure of political power through police organizations and fraternal groups just in order to secure some stronger social footing. And again, I think relative to the way that migrations are changing cities in the you know, progressive era, they're able to at least mark themselves as being different from other, you know, browner populations that are coming into the cities in ways that would give them benefits going forward. Ironically, uh, the very thing that was held against them, they tended to concentrate in the cities, for instance, and create political machines, was the very thing that actually gave them some independent economic mm. power. The other thing that I think is, is key with the Irish case is we never went to war with Ireland. So if you look at what happened in the Germans in the 19-teens and again, you know, in the 1940s, you know, there's a clear sense that many people are trying to distance themselves from a German identity, right? The, the Irish are obviously a much smaller group, but they also come, you know, into our history as workers, as people who are part of unions, as people who are in some ways the kind of scrappy underbelly of American society. And so it's certainly, you know, this sense of these Irish ethnic neighborhoods in places like Boston and New York that are beginning to, you know, show themselves in cinema and in plays, right? I mean, you have a variety of ways in which you can reassert a working classness that is in some ways a kind of counterpoint to obviously elites in ma major cities, but in some cases even other complaining minority groups, right, coming out of the civil rights movement. <laughs> That's absolutely right. They, they were know. called the rise of the unmeltable ethnics, and the <laughs> Irish led that charge. You know, it's, yeah, it's a funny thing about, about ethnicity, though, because uh, my last name is, is an Irish last name, Connolly. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, I, and I can honestly tell you, you know, that I never really adopted a sense of connection to Ireland or the Irish. I mean, there was a coat of arms in the house, but it was almost like a kind of tongue-in-cheek, this black family with an Irish coat of arms. You know, culture has to be practiced. And in my family, we never, you know, practiced Irish, you know, celebrations. We never didn't had any association with Gaelic. I went to a Catholic church with an Irish pastor for, tw for 20 years, and that was never part of my identity. That was Father Sean Mulcahy's identity, right? <laughs> Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> and so you know that that's just the, the 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 nature I think of ethnicity, and still you know I think St. Patrick's Day is a great holiday, right? I loved listening to House of Pain, you know, growing up, um, you know, a great Irish rap group, you know, so so a lot of that I think is still broadly acceptable and mainstream, but I think the the utility of the Irish identity didn't come with my particular go round with an Irish last name. So I do think that today it is easier to practice a bit of cultural experimentation or mm. appropriation. One can take Irish folk dancing if they want. And the big difference is that one's ethnic identity is not wrapped up as intricately with where they live and what their occupation is as it used to be at the turn of the 20th century. So it allows you to disaggregate cultural practice, ethnic practices, if you will, from occupational and residential choices. You're suggesting this sort of um, free and easy cultural atmosphere where everybody can switch hats. Um, and I'm not sure that's true of all ethnicities, and I wonder if there is something different about the Irish. Great, great point. 
What is it? Darn. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> come up with that. We, we have we have folks who, you know, celebrate Cinco de Mayo and they'll wear a sombrero or something, but there'll be a lot more pushback against something like that or folks who, you know, want to don, you know, blackface costumes for Halloween. There's a pushback on that. And, you know, we're much more generous with people who wear, you know, Irish plastic hats, bowler hats exactly. or, you know, drink green beer because it's, you know, one day a year and you get to get drunk and all that. Um, but it, it doesn't seem to carry the same kind of fraught history, in part because a lot of the groups that are considered to be on society's margins tend to have a, more of a hands-off policy when it comes to cultural appropriation. I mean, by, by most con- conventional measures, the Irish are part of the quote-unquote mainstream. I mean, few people would know that there were over 100,000 Irish immigrants who came to this country, quote-unquote, illegally, violating tourist visas and the like in the 1980s. It didn't create a panic in the same way we think about Muslims coming into America or Mexicans coming into America. In fact, just the opposite. Churches, the mayor of New York, Ed Koch, a bunch of people made it very easy for them to kind of mm. ease into American society on legal terms. But so Nathan, think, taking your examples, yeah. isn't the distinguishing factor race? Isn't that what distinguishes the Irish? They passed into whiteness sometime around the beginning of the 20th century or so. I think that's absolutely the the difference. Um, but I, I will say, too, that, you know, we're in a moment now where obviously, you know, there's more redrawing of various fault lines and the, the possibilities of, you know, more people being considered, you know, mainstream is, yep. is never off the table. But but I think we should be very mindful of the distinctive place that the Irish have enjoyed as having made a really marked transition between the early 19th, late 19th, and now early 21st century is is one way to make sense of why their symbolism and, and the pageantry around them for at least, you know, one time during the year seems far less threatening than some other examples. Right. I mean, in a sense, what we're saying is that, that the Irish have become quintessentially American. That's going to do it for us today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director. Diana Williams is our digital editor. And Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishosh, Sequoia Carrillo, Korean Thomas, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Pottington Bear, and Jazar. And as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.